It is our joy, once again, to look in Matthew chapter nine. And as you're turning there, um, all of you know that I'm a, a, I have deep admiration for Dr. John MacArthur. Um, he's been pastor of Grace Community Church for, I think, something like 53 years now. He has been in the pulpit of Grace Community Church, and the vast majority of that time, he preached through the Gospels. Uh, it took him about <clears throat> seven years to preach through Matthew, about 10 years to preach through Luke, a number of years to preach through John and Mark because of its uh, quick structure. He was able to get through that only in about two years. And uh, one of the things that he said is that uh, I just cannot get enough. Of course, he would preach through the Gospels, then he'd turn around and start writing his commentaries based off of his sermons. And so the vast majority of his 50-year ministry has been spent in the four Gospels, and he just cannot get enough. Now, I know that I am no John MacArthur, and I cannot get away with uh, preaching, staying in the same book for 10 years. Don't worry, I'm not going to try. <clears throat> but... Uh, I am beginning to kind of feel a little bit of what he's feeling, this study through Matthew and just uh, seeing our Lord and the life that he lived and the ministry that he had and the way that God inspired the gospel writers to record it has been just the joy, one of the greatest joys that I've had since I've been here. And so I'm, I'm just looking forward to it, and I hope you're getting a little taste of that as well. Matthew chapter 9. We are beginning in verse 14, and uh, I will, uh, it's kind of a long text, so I will, I will simply read it and ask you to follow along either on the board or in your copy of the Word of God. If you want to use the Bible on the pulpit, uh, Bible in the pen, pew, one of these P words, <clears throat> and the pew in front of you, you can find this on 967, page 967 of the Bible in the pew in front of you. Here's what the word of God says. It says, Then the disciples of John came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, <clears throat> and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled out and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. And while he was saying these things to him, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him and saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she was saying to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and a crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out through all that district. 
This is the word of the Lord this morning. May he bless the exposition of it. I don't know about you, but have you ever gotten kind of a piece of information that you just really don't know what to deal with, what to do with it, you know? Um, somebody gives you, uh, tells you something, and, and you just sit there and you say, I don't really know what to say to that. Like, for example, when I found out Southside beat uh, Batesville on Friday, I was just like, I don't know what to do with that. So uh, <laughs> I just don't know how to respond, you know? Uh, Maybe uh, it's uh, at work and you have a meeting, one of those meetings that uh, your boss has given you all these new ideas that you can try, you know, you know how they love to come up with new ideas and, uh, and you're just like, yeah, I don't even know what they're talking about or what, the, what we're supposed to do with this information. Maybe you've had that. And, you know, I fear sometimes though in, in focusing so much on the content of the gospel that we have at times really forgotten how to tell people how to respond to the gospel. What, what is the proper response? And we've, and we've seen a lot of things through the years, you know, back during the, the last century uh, when our nation really had a kind of a revivalistic fervor. You had the ministry of Billy Graham, and, and before him, you had the ministry of uh, someone else. I can't remember who that was, but you really had a chain going back, F.B. Meyer, Billy Sunday, going all the way back to D.L. Moody is when this kind of mass evangelism kind of started. And, uh, and when you have something like that, there's a temptation to want to water down, kind of make the response to the gospel really into something like cliches that, that we know what they mean because we were raised in the church, but a lot of times the world doesn't really know what we're talking about. And that doesn't mean that the things we say are bad necessarily because we understand what they mean, but oftentimes the world does not. And so this morning, what I wanna do is, is as we're going through Matthew, I've, I'm looking at, okay, we looked at really the provision last week, but now uh, the question is, how do we command people to respond to the message of the kingdom? How do we command people to do that? And this morning, my beloved, my, my goal is to motivate us to be faithful, to faithfulness in calling people to biblical, true biblical conversion to Jesus Christ. And the question is, how do they do that? And so, just like I said, last week we looked at Christ and we looked at that we are to call sinners to Christ. Why? Because he is able to forgive sins. And he is actively seeking sinners. We, we saw that last week. But now the question is, what do we do with that information? How do we respond to the gospel? What is the response that the scriptures command us to tell people? What do we tell them to do? <clears throat> and how, what do they do with that provision? After all, I can have all the medicine in the world if I don't take it. It's not gonna do me a whole lot of good. And I'm the world's worst at that. I will complain about a headache all day long. And somebody will ask me, well, have you taken an aspirin or something? No. I think that's a guy thing. I don't know. But boy, I'll complain about it all day long. And I'll, I will, uh, you'll hear all about it. But I'm not gonna do anything for it. And I'm afraid sometimes we kind of hold the aspirin out there, but we don't give it to people who actually have the headache. And so the question is, what do we do with it? How do, we, how do we command them to respond? And beloved, this morning we're gonna see through these 
two examples that we must proclaim the gospel by calling people to true biblical conversion. To biblical conversion. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Matthew, in these two stories we've read this morning, he's gonna show us, he's gonna demonstrate two vital components that come with conversion, that if conversion is going to be biblical, it must include both of these, and you already know what they are, don't you? You already know that one is repentance and the other is faith, and you must you must respond to the gospel. If you're gonna to respond to the gospel, you must respond to both of them if by both of those means, if you're going to be biblically converted. So these two vital components, we, we see this in these two stories. And I, and I wanna show you how we get there in uh, chapter nine. And so beginning in verse 14, the first thing we see is that biblical conversion, if we're going to proclaim and if we're gonna call people to be biblically converted, then it must include repentance. It must include repentance. And here's what we look at in verse 14. And then the disciples of John, they came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, the question is, why are they asking about fasting? This kind of seems to come out of nowhere. But if you recall, back in Matthew chapter six, verses one through 18, we talked about the sincerity of the disciple. And you remember, uh, if you will, there were, there were three core practices that Jesus kinda chose to talk about. And those were not just pulled out of a hat, but they were chosen by Christ to talk about because they are the three most basic and understood to be the most uh, core practices of holiness in Jewish life. And they were giving of alms, they were prayer, and it was fasting. In fact, it, uh, we looked at some passages that, uh, or, we, or I told you about some passages in, in the Jewish law where it was said that fasting was kind of the, the energy that provided, it was what made the other two holy. You might remember when the rich, uh, when the Pharisee went into the temple to pray, and one of the examples he gave to God as to why God was so lucky to have him was because he says, I fast twice per week. And we have, and we have evidence that does suggest that when the Pharisees, when they would do their fast, they would, they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Now, why they chose those days, I don't know. But Mondays and Thursdays, they would fast twice a week, and the whole reason why was so that they could earn favor with God. It was their means of self-righteousness. And so you can understand now why the disciples of John, who also fast, you know how strict John the Baptist's diet was, and you can imagine his disciples are, are getting kind of a similar lifestyle, and they fast, and the Pharisees fast, and yet Jesus, this new teacher on the scene that is attracting all these crowds, and yet he's not saying anything about fasting at all. His disciples aren't fasting. In fact, when I first read this, I, I kind of got a little tickled. Hey, Jesus, how come y'all can eat and we can't? <laughs> but, but there was a little more to it than that. And so Jesus, instead of just giving them a straight answer, he gives three examples. Three examples. It's a wed from a wedding, a wearing, and wine. Tried to stick with the W's there, so 
Wedding, wearing, and wine. <laughs> what are these examples here? What does he say? Well, the first one in verse 15. And Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So I want you to notice there, Jesus is not just saying that fasting is wrong. In fact, he says, look, the day's gonna come when my disciples are gonna fast too. So Jesus is not downplaying fasting here. But what is he doing? He's saying that as long as the bridegroom, as long as the attendants of the bridegroom are with the bridegroom in the chamber, that is not a time for fasting. That is not a time for fasting. And in fact, in this day, if you were the attendant of a bridegroom, you simply saw to everything he needed. You, you were helping get everything ready. It was a time of joy. It was time of celebration. And for you to be that person who came to that situation, to that circumstance, in this circumstance of joy and this celebration, and you came mourning and fasting, that would be a dishonor to the groom and really a dereliction of service. And so it was completely inappropriate as long as the bridegroom was with the attendants. It was very inappropriate for people to show a sign of mourning. And so Jesus is taking this example from the Old Testament. He's saying all those times that God declared himself to be the husband of Israel, the bridegroom is here. And as long as I am here, there is no need for my guys to fast but the day is coming when I'm gonna be taken away and then they will fast. And so that's the first example. The second example is from wearing. He says in verse 16, no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Now, those of you who are familiar with sewing, you understand this, right? Because if you have a tear in your cloak and you take a, a patch of material that has not been pre-shrunk, and you sew that on to cover up the tear, what's gonna happen when that patch shrinks? It's gonna start to shrink, and it's gonna pull that sewing job you did, and it's ultimately gonna tear your cloak, and in the same way, it's gonna make a worse tear than was there before. And so Jesus, first of all, he says, the bridegroom is here, and now, because the bridegroom is here, you are not gonna take a patch of unshrunk cloth and put it onto an old garment. Because when you do, the garment's gonna be worse for wear. And then he gives a third example, and I know as Baptists, we're not too crazy about this example, but here it is. He says, you don't, in verse 17, nor do people put new wine in an old wineskin, Otherwise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wineskin and fresh wineskins and both are preserved. What's he talking about here? Well, I, you know, to be honest with you, I never really understood this until I went to an alpaca farm one time. And at the alpaca farm, they actually made a, a, a uh, kind, of a, kind of a canteen from the alpaca hair. And they would lay strands on each other and then, they would, and then they'd pour water on it and they'd smooth it out. And, and over time, the more they did that, the more it became solid and you could actually hold water in it. But here's the thing, what would happen is that when they, that's how they would make their wineskins, but when they would pour the wine into it, guess what would happen? It would begin to ferment, right? And what happens when it ferments? It begins to stretch out the wineskin about as far as it can go. 
And so if you poured all that wine out and then put new wine into that wineskin that's already stretched to its limit, and then it begins to ferment, what's gonna happen? Pop, right? So maybe today we should say, you know, if you blow up a balloon, if you put new air in an old balloon, you know, then it's gonna pop in your face or something like that. But, but same principle, right? What is, what is Jesus saying here? What, what is the point of all this? You see, the, the disciples of John are coming to Jesus saying, how come, how come y'all can eat and we can't? And Jesus is saying, number one, because I'm here. And number two, because all those ways of self-righteousness that you practice, you cannot simply add Jesus onto those things. Jesus is not a rubber stamp that we patch on to our own self-righteousness and our own ways of earning heaven, earning salvation, all the things that we do to make ourselves righteous, and then we take Jesus as a rubber stamp to kind of approve us. He is saying that you must repent of all of your ways of self-righteousness. You must repent of all of those things because now Christ is here and Christ is either all or nothing. That's the point. That's the point he's making with these illustrations. Christ is either all or nothing. You cannot simply add Jesus to your old ways of self-righteousness and ask him to be a yes man to your own personal holiness. When, uh, when Roxanne's mom passed away, about a year before she passed away, she met a, she met a man named Seren, and he was a wonderful man. He, uh, he was a Nepali gentleman. And being from Nepal, he was Hindu. His religion was Hindu. And I will tell you, I learned something about Hindus is that it's very difficult to witness to Hindus because they will accept Christ that quick. No problem. They'll say, yeah, I believe Christ is God. But it's, see, if you understand the Hindu religion, you understand that they believe that there are many, many, many gods and they have no problem just attaching Jesus onto that thing, right? And he's just one of many. And we look at, and, and I asked uh, Ryan about this, um, Ryan uh, Rainbolt, I asked him, you know, he's in Mumbai and he is uh, ministering there, planting churches and such. You remember him, he spoke to us last year. I asked him about that. He said, oh yes, that is, that is very difficult, very difficult. And we look at that and we say, oh, those poor people, if, if they could only understand. But beloved, how often do we do the same thing? We have our traditions, we have our understandings of, of my own holiness, we have my own understanding of righteousness, and then we take Jesus and we just kind of put him on top of it and say that he's the icing on the cake. He's the, he's the rubber stamp, he's the yes man of my own righteousness, and, and I'm a pretty good person, I'm okay, but Jesus is there for when I happen to make a mistake, which is not very often. You know, when I, uh, when Roxanne and I, uh, we've been married for 20 years. I think I've been wrong maybe twice in those 20 years, maybe. Maybe, a little bit, just a little bit. But how often do we live our lives like that? And then Jesus is only there to help us when we're wrong. Beloved, Jesus is either all your righteousness 
or he is none of it. He is either everything or he is nothing. And we must repent of all kinds of self-righteousness, all kinds of ways that we have ruled ourselves and we have tried to make our own way to God. We must repent to all of them and bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus will either be all or he will be nothing. In fact, uh, and I, this is not on my notes, but it just came to me. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter, chapter 10 and, and verse four. He says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes it is either by law or it is by God's own righteousness through Jesus Christ. And he goes on and says in verse 11 that it is for in verse six, for if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Beloved, it is either all grace or it is all works. There is no mixture. There is no mingling of those two. There is no straddling the fence. Christ is either all or he is nothing. And so if we are going to respond in biblical conversion, we must repent. It must include repentance. And when we share the gospel, when we call sinners to Christ, we must call them to repentance. There's, there's so many people today who don't like that term. They, they think it's works. They think that it's, that it's some kind of earning. We repent in order to be saved. And it's our, and it's our works that, that save us. Beloved, Jesus, the very first words of the gospel, the very first words that we have him saying in his public ministry is repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. If Jesus says repent, so can we. If Jesus tells us to repent, then we must call people to repentance as well. And I'll say more about that here shortly. But Biblical conversion must include repentance. And then number two, biblical conversion must include faith. Must include faith. Now, this is where we get into verse 18. And there, there's kind of a, a double healing here, if you will, kind of merged into the same story. And I want you to notice before we go on, he says, while he was saying these things to them, and I want you to notice there that, that Matthew is specifically connecting these two stories. He wants you to understand that, that the question on fasting and the next story that we're gonna get into, these two are interrelated and there's something he wants to teach the church by putting these two stories together. And so here's what he does. He says that while he was saying these things, a synagogue official came to him, bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live and Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. So there's, there's two people we're gonna meet here, a synagogue ruler, someone who is in charge of the synagogue. He's in charge of the readings. He, he puts it all together. He manages it all. He's a leader in the community. And then we're also gonna see a woman, beginning in verse 20, and a woman who had been suffering from a discharge of blood for 12 years, sneaks up behind Christ and touches his garment 
That's their conditions. Now, both of these two, just like we saw in, in the miracles past, both of these two are gonna be considered unclean. The synagogue leader, because he's had contact with a dead body. Now, there's some, there's some other details here that Matthew leaves out, but he came into contact with a dead body and the woman had a discharge of blood. And, and you actually see that in Numbers chapter five, verse two. And I did not include that on the board, but you might just wanna write that down. Because in Numbers chapter five, verse two, it says, uh, command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp, watch this, every leper, everyone having a discharge, and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. Do you notice that Matthew almost seems to be kind of writing this in light of Numbers chapter five? Because we saw him heal a leper, now we're gonna see him with a discharge of blood, and we also see him with someone who's had contact with a dead body. And so it's almost like Matthew is connecting these on purpose. And so both of these, are, both of these ones are unclean, the woman more immediately so, and probably understood as worse so. But I want you to notice the cures here. Because the woman comes up to Christ in verse 21 and 20 and touches the fringe of his cloak because she's saying to herself, if I can only touch the fringe of his cloak, I will be healed. Her understanding is that she will come up, make her way to Jesus, reach out, and she will touch his cloak and then she'll have everything she's needed in the last 12 years. But Jesus turns around and wants to correct her. He says here in verse 22, Jesus turning and seeing her said, daughter, take courage. By the way, do you remember that phrase from earlier? Do you remember when Jesus saw the paralytic man, the paralyzed man, being carried by four people, and he walks in in chapter nine, verse two, and Jesus says to him, take courage. Your sins are forgiven. There's a connection here. Your sins are forgiven in nine, two, take courage. Now he tells the daughter, take courage. Why? He says, because your faith has made you well. This is one area where some modern translations, the vast majority of them, really don't help us see a connection here because the word there is the same word that's translated saved. And so that's why I like, I have the Legacy Standard Bible up there because they translate it quite literally. They, they say that, but Jesus turning and seeing her said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has saved you. Now, is made you well a, a good translation of a sozo? Yes, it is. But Matthew is choosing that word in particular because he does want us to see a connection here. And the whole reason why he includes the story of this woman was because having seen an example of repentance in verses 14 through 17, now he shows us this woman, this interruption that you might even say, you know, for Matthew's, for Matthew's gospel, it really doesn't add anything to the story. I mean, why does he even include this interruption in the first place? Because he wants you to see the importance of faith. He wants you to see the importance that we respond not only by the repentance of verses 14 through 17, but also by the faith of this woman in verses 18 through 22. 
And so I want you to see the connection here. He goes on, verses 24 and 23 through following. He enters into the official's house and he saw the flute players in the crowd and noisy disorder. By the way, just one of their customs when someone died, they, they actually had kind of professional mourners who would come in and, and help them mourn and it would get really loud. And um, for example, when uh, Roxanne's mother passed away, you know, her, her husband was Nepali. And the moment he died, he let out just this blood-curdling scream. I mean, it was just, that's just the way he mourned was that he began screaming over her and, and all that. And that's kind of what's happening here. All this disorder, all of, this, all of the flute players are coming in and, and all of this. And Jesus walks in and sees all this disorder and chaos. And he tells them, leave. Because the girl's not died, but she is asleep. It's all kinds of ideas. Why did Jesus say this? I think he's just pointing out, guys, this is only temporary. I'm here. I'm here. And without any fanfare, without any major announcements, without any elaboration, without anything other than the bare fact of the story, Matthew says that Jesus walked in when everyone walked out, he laid his hands on the young lady and she rose from the dead. And beloved, I want you to see this connection. Why does Matthew connect these two stories? In Matthew chapter nine, verse 18, why is he showing you these two stories together? Because when we repent and when we place our faith in Christ, we will have new life. We will rise. Look at, a, look at a couple of passages with me. John chapter five, verse, verse 27. I want you to see all of this. Is that on the board? Yeah. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you that whoever hears my word and believe, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Beloved, when we come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, we're, we're not just turning over a new leaf. We're not just getting a new lease on life. We're not just coming to a new worldview. We pass from being dead to being alive. Look at, uh, look at Ephesians chapter two, verse one. It says that, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. And then he goes on in verses four and five. He says that, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, what did he do? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You've gone from death to life. John chapter five, verse 24, what, is, what does he say there? He says here that whoever hears my words, is this one on the board? Maybe not. Yeah, truly, truly, I say to you that whoever hears my words and believe in me, believe him who sent me, has eternal life. He has not come into judgment, but passed from death to life. When we repent and believe in the gospel, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we pass from death to life. 
Do you remember in 2013, Google put out a huge announcement. They invested $1.5 billion into a medical research company called Calico. Do you remember Calico? Do you remember the, you remember the headlines that came out from it? It was in Time Magazine. There was a big write-up. In Calico, their mission was to study aging and the diseases related with it. And the whole point, the whole thing that they are trying to study, and even to this day, you can look up their, their webpage and you can read about some of the stuff they're doing. And what they are trying to do is cure death. They're trying to make it so that no one dies anymore. Death is a mystery, and there is something about it that people know there's something about this that is just not right. It's not supposed to be this way. How can we fix this? And all throughout the centuries, people have tried to find a cure for death. All of the, all of the uh, legends of the fountain of youth Maybe you read the story uh, Tuck Everlasting when you were a kid, that there was a fountain of youth that was found in that little town, gave them everlasting life. Maybe you recall different ways that people have tried to do that. In fact, uh, and I'm not usually one to, to talk about him, but uh, Pope John Paul II wrote an encyclical called The Encyclical of Life. And as far as I'm concerned, it's a masterpiece because he talks about how our culture tries to deny death and we do everything we can to try to take the look of death off of our faces. Think about it, how often we, we try to make ourselves youthful and all the things we do to try to make ourselves look younger and all of those things. We're trying to delay death as much as we can. But try as Google might the stench and evidence of death is all around, is it not? We, here's the one thing that they forgot to, they, they didn't take into account, is that we are dead. In our flesh, we are dead. From the time that the fruit was eaten in the garden, we have been dead and dying. In fact, look at how some of this is worded. I pointed out, uh, John, a second ago, but look at, again, look at Ephesians chapter one. You saw that. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, verse 31. He says that the present form of this world is passing away. Beloved, the world is dying. And all that's in it, 1 John chapter two, verse 17, says that the world is passing away and along with its desires, the world is passing away. We are dead and dying. And the evidence of death is all around us, isn't it? I mean, drive down to Colton's down the back road and you have that beautiful graveyard. They, they do such a good job upkeeping that. That is, that is such a beautiful graveyard that you would almost forget that it's full of dead people. Full of dead people. And the evidence of the curse is all around us, beloved. All around us. Despite Google's best efforts, humanity's death rate is still 100%. One out of one people will die. One out of one people And not only that, there's also the decay. 
Think about this, all of you guys who know cars, I know several of you know cars, right? What happens when you leave a car in a garage and you don't maintain it ever? Or you just let it sit down, what does it do? It falls apart, it decays. And think about how our bodies do that. Our bodies decay. I'm 44 years old and I'm already this decrepit. I can't wait until I'm 80. I mean, I've got sore bones all over me as I got knees sore, my back never quite healed right from when I popped it a year ago. Can't wait until I'm 80. And guys, just think about the ways we live our lives. Think about how many things we do. Just like Romans 7, 24, when Paul says, the things I know to do, those things I don't do, those things that I know I, I should not be doing, those things I do, right? And think about how often we do this. How many habits do we have in our lives that we know are bad for us, but we keep doing them anyway? And every year around New Year's, we say, okay, this is gonna get better, and that lasts for about two weeks, if even. And for some of us, and notice I say us, it lasts for about two hours. But that's beyond the point. Guys, the signs of death is all around us. It's all over us. And despite Google's best efforts, there is only one cure for death. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus defeated death, and when we repent and believe upon Christ, we have new life in Jesus Christ. And this is the message. This is the message of the kingdom. This is the mission of the disciple. This is the way the kingdom grows, is by sending that message out that Christ is able to forgive sins. He's actively seeking sinners. And so we call them to repent and to believe in the gospel. And when they do, they will pass from death to life. That is the message of the kingdom. And that's what God has entrusted us with as the church. So beloved, we must call sinners to true conversion. We must call them to repent and believe. Repentance means that, they, that you must turn away from your sins, all of your, all of your ways of self-righteousness, all of your self-rule. You must give up all of that and place your faith in Jesus Christ, surrendering to him as Lord and placing your faith on, on him. And how do we... How do we respond to that? How do, we, how do we show our repentance and faith? Jesus says to be baptized. And so we repent and believe we have new life and we show that in our baptism before the church. So beloved, we must call sinners to true repentance. We must call them to faith in Christ. So how can we be motivated to do that? We, we need to be motivated to call people to Christ, you know, to call them to repentance, call them to faith. We must not water that down. And so how can we do that? Let me give you some motivations to help you remember to be faithful. Number one is that knowing Christ's love will motivate us to be faithful witnesses. Knowing Christ's love, First, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 
Paul says that Christ's love controls us. It compels us, knowing that if one died for sins, then all have died. And so we understand, we know that because of the punishment that Jesus that Jesus experienced on the cross because of the wrath he felt. We know that that is what everyone deserves. And knowing God's love, knowing Christ's love, it compels us to go out. Knowing his love more and more and more causes us to care for what he cares about, lost sinners. And so knowing Christ's love motivates us to call sinners to repentance and faith. Number two, love and concern for others. Love and concern for others. And the verses right above that, he talks about how that we have, well, let me just turn there. First, uh, Second Corinthians chapter five. Let me just turn there real quick so I don't butcher it. He says here that we are again not commending ourselves, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are for sound mind, it is for you. And so we, our love and concern for others, how can you see someone destroying their lives that God loves and be silent? It's kind of like an intervention where you sit down with someone and say, I love you, and because I love you, I cannot watch you destroy your life anymore with this habit or with this substance. And beloved, in the same way, because we love this person, because we're concerned for this person, we cannot watch them die in their sins. But we must call them to repentance and faith. Number three, a deep desire to please God. You know, when you love someone, you wanna please them. You want to do the things that make them joyful. You wanna do the things that make them happy. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter two that, that we please God. We aim, it is our aim to please God. And beloved, if you have an aim to please God, then you're gonna be motivated. Are, are you more motivated by the love of God, by the love of Christ, or are you more motivated by the admiration of others? Are you more motivated by, by having others affirm you are you serving God or are you serving men? A deep desire to please God. And then finally, remembering that salvation is ultimately God's work. It is God's work. Beloved, we don't have to be afraid. You know, I mentioned a second ago that uh, a lot of people don't like to talk about repentance because they're afraid that it's a work. Look at, look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. This really just kind of blows that out of the water. Really beginning in verse 24, he says, for the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wrong. Why? With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps, and watch this, God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Beloved, it's all by grace. It's all by grace. And so we don't have to be afraid to call people to repentance. We don't have to be afraid to call people to turn from their sins and come to life in Christ. But we do it with gentleness. We do it with humility. We do it with love so that God might perhaps grant them that repentance, leading to a knowledge 
of Jesus Christ. So beloved, we, we trust the Lord. We trust him. We, we trust him with our souls and we trust him with our witness as well. And if God tells us to call people to repent and believe, then that is what we must call people to do. And if you're here this morning, beloved, you, you have not commanded, you have not repented of your sins and you have not turned to Christ as Savior and Lord. Beloved, that is what the word commands you to do this morning. You are, you are here in rebellion against God. You have the mark of death on you. You're under the wrath of God. But he came as God sent his only begotten son, fully man, fully God, to earn the righteousness that you need. And then he died on the cross to pay your penalty for sins so that you would not have to die. And then to show that it was enough, he rose three days later from the grave. He, he was seen by over 500 people, including the ones who wrote our Bible. And then he, he ascended into heaven. He's now at the right hand of the Father, and he's offering himself to you as a savior, as a rescue from his own wrath. God accepted his own wrath for you. He died so that you can have life. And beloved, you can have that life if you will turn from your sins, if you will repent, and you will place your faith and trust in Christ alone. Have you done that today? Have you done that before? Maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day you need to do that. I pray that you will come. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for this life that you've given us. For the ones that Christ encountered so many years ago and you inspired Matthew to tell us about. Lord, I pray that this morning, perhaps there is one of their stories has spoken to the hearts of someone here. And maybe for the first time, they are coming to a full understanding, a clear understanding of the gospel. I pray that you would convince them that that understanding that they have is a gift from you and that, and that need that they are feeling that is arising in their heart, that they need to turn from their sins and trust in you, Lord, that that is the, con the conviction of your spirit inviting them to come. Lord, would you save someone today? And Father, maybe there are so many of us in here that we need to be more faithful in our witness. I pray we've been motivated this morning by seeing the lives that you touched when Christ was here. And Lord, may we be about the business of touching lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ, showing that genuine healing, true healing is available for their souls if they will only repent and believe. Maybe you're placing someone on the mind of everyone here right now. Maybe they've been on, your mind, maybe they've been on their mind for a while. Lord, I pray you would enable them this week to be faithful and to share these truths with them. Whatever their need is, whatever your need is this morning, I invite you to come. Maybe you need to know Christ as your Savior. I would love to tell you how to do that. Would you just come up to the front? We'll set you down for a moment, and then I'll take you in the back and explain the gospel more fully to you. Maybe you're here this morning, and you say, I'd Randy, I want to obey the scriptures, but I don't. I need some practical steps how to do that. Would you, would you pray for me? I'll be more than happy to.
Maybe you want to talk to Art or Roy or John or Miss Bobby, Miss Benita, or one of our many leaders and gracious people in the church who are mature in their faith. Maybe, maybe you want to talk to them this morning. You can certainly do that. Whatever your need is, I pray you come. Let's stand and just reflect on what we've heard for a few minutes as our musicians play. Mm.